like 9,000 participants that gave us money to build out Ethereum and trust us to carry it out. And in 2015, it launched and the people that uh, were involved in the crowd sale had their wallets filled with, with Ether. And then it promptly proceeded to go from, you know, 25 cents initially up to where it is right now. And from an $18 million market cap up to 500 billion at, at one point. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and this is the UK Startup Podcast, where you can learn what it's really like being a top entrepreneur and how to get there. Today, I'm talking to Anthony Iorio. He is one of the co-founders of Ethereum, the massive open source blockchain, which is home to Ether, the second biggest cryptocurrency in the world after Bitcoin. No one knows who invented Bitcoin. The made-up name of its creator was Satoshi Nakamoto. But we do know who invented Ethereum, and one of its inventors is the man you're hearing from today. Anthony stepped away from Ethereum in 2015 and is currently the CEO of Decentral, a software development company that he founded, which focuses on blockchain tech. Anthony's story is pretty wild, as you'd expect, and he now needs round-the-clock bodyguards, obviously. But as we like to do, Let's go back to the start, to Canada, so we can understand where this real innovator came from. I was born in a small town called Witch Church Stoll. Actually, I grew up in Rich Church Stoll, which is a town about 40 minutes north of the city of Toronto. It was on an acre property with a pond and a soccer field, and my dad had built the house. Didn't have too many neighbors up there and a lot of farmland, um, but it was, a, it was a nice home. It was a few thousand square feet. and. My childhood was, was full of uh, sports and uh, didn't really ever really need anything as a, as a child and had great family and parents that were all about uh, taking care of the children and about family. My mom was a teacher, my dad an entrepreneur, my dad someone who was uh, an inventor, creator, problem solver, where I got a lot of my, my skills there. The biggest thing for me in my life at the time growing up were computers and reading. I had uh, two older siblings, uh, older sister and an older brother. Computers were the, were the thing that was emerging at the time in the early 80s. Uh, personal computing was really taking off and uh, my dad brought home uh, an IBM PC Junior, which uh, was from the early 80s and that was really the first connection with a computer and that was something that I just became enthralled with and uh, to this day computers are a large aspect of my life and growing up in the, my childhood building computers and before the dawn of the internet, modems and connecting with others and you know, things like computer camps and rocketry camp and things like that. So yeah, sports, reading, computers were, were a big part of my life. School wasn't something I really cared for too much. I never liked being told what to do. I did very well early on in grade school, but as it moved along, I really didn't, didn't care too much about school. Uh, I had a very cavalier attitude as was what the teachers would say and what my parents would say in school, but it's just something I never really aligned very well with. And yeah, my computer was the thing that was my my closest friend then. And I, and I wasn't, uh, you know, I did have quite a few friends growing up and, uh, but it was, it, it did have a, a major impact on me. And I, and I think uh, a lot of times you don't realize how much impact your parents can have on you till later on. And you start seeing a lot of the similarities with, with things. And I had a, I had a, had a good childhood and it was full of love and uh, didn't have the struggles and challenges that maybe others had. And maybe that's a good and bad thing because I think struggles is what, what makes someone. And I'm talking about in, in the childhood years. I mean, I, I went to school, university for business just because I didn't really know what else to be doing and uh, graduated from university. 
I really got through university on the help of friends and was not something that I, I know I spent more time playing pool in the local pub uh, with, a, with a good friend of mine rather than I spent in classes. I wasn't passionate about it. It wasn't something that, that, that interested me and I, and I got by and I, and I graduated and went on into marketing and became a marketing director for a manufacturing company. But what did it set me? It set me up for a realization that, that being in the typical workforce wasn't something of interest to me and something that, what I, that I really enjoyed doing, and much like school, didn't like the idea of being told what to do. And, and uh, over the next many years, I went into joined uh, the family business, uh, which was sliding patio door manufacturing. And this was throughout the early 2000s. It was uh, still you know, learning skills, learning tools, uh, building up um, during that phase, my entrepreneurial framework and, and learning a lot about different aspects of hiring and, and management and uh, still along the way being very heavily involved in, into computers and uh, in tech. But when the internet had kind of began to flourish in the late 90s and uh, or through the whole 90s, you know, I was, I was in it very early developing websites in the early 90s, but just wasn't there where I could really utilize the internet to where I could take advantage of it or utilize it in a fashion that I'd be able to really provide value at that, at that time. The 2000s were, were really building up my entrepreneurial skills in the family business. And in 2008, uh, the family decided to sell the business. It was, it was the right time. My dad was looking to retire and I had the opportunity to do something different. And I got into geothermal drilling, which was, uh, I had a drilling company and it ended up not being feasible anymore. And this was in about 2010. And I ended up leasing the drill out to someone else and, and started thinking about uh, what I would be doing next. And it was at this time that I was really digging into economics and really studying after the housing crisis and the financial crisis and what had happened there and came across a gentleman named Peter Schiff. This ended up being a, a perfect storm for me in 2012 when I heard about Bitcoin. Just basically a culmination of coming off of economics and saying, okay, here's, here's where we are right now. This is the way things work, but it's, it's not working very well. And we've seen, we saw what happened in 2008 in, in the US and in Canada thinking the same thing was happening. I, I owned some properties at that time and was thinking I should sell these things because we're going to have the same type of issue. And there's a lot of debt here in Canada. And, uh, and then I heard about Bitcoin and I took my economics learnings that I had and, and my computer background and my knowledge of decentralized systems and, and the idea of creating value and entrepreneurship. And it was really a perfect storm at that time for me to dive headfirst into what I saw as a solution to empower people to be in control of their digital lives, to be their own bank, to own their identities, own their communications, all these really important things that, that create independence and, and uh, new business models to exist that serve more people than uh, a lot of the handful that, that exists now that lead to situations where, where many people aren't happy. And, and I saw that back then in 2012, and it was, it was my goal to jump in and to be a catalyst for community building around the technology. And that's what I did starting in 2012. So it's 2012 and you've got all these rental properties. Like, what did you do? Like, how much did you, did you get rid of all of them and put all that money into Bitcoin? If so, how much money was that um, back then? Like, what kind of conviction did you have at the time? Yeah, well, I actually sold before I, before I even got into Bitcoin, right? I sold when I was getting into the economics of things and understanding that uh, five years of really steady growth here in Canada and buying a property for around 300000 and selling it for 700000 uh, within a few years, um, when will that change? And uh, I wasn't right with that. I mean, the prices continue to go up and you're always battling the, is there just so much growth coming into Canada here that it's still catching up to other cities? Or is it the fact that it is over overheated and there's, and nobody, nobody quite knows those things. You try to predict things and you never know when things are going to happen, but 
I actually sold my properties before getting into Bitcoin and I dabbled a bit into gold and silver back in, in 2011. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, many hundreds of thousands of dollars that, that I kind of, after selling the properties that I had there, but I only put in $8,000 in the Bitcoin. That was my initial investment from day one. That's all I, I really, I put in $8,000 when it was hovering around, around 10 bucks or in that, in that range back in 2012. But then I, I started the trial Bitcoin meetup group, which was a, a major decision for me to start becoming a, a center of gravity for community building. And the idea that I was studying Bitcoin for weeks in, in the summer of 2012 and just becoming so enthralled and I wasn't sleeping and it was just, here's technical solutions and principled solutions that could really create massive change for this in a world where it's sorely needed. And I looked around for a community once I was ready to start talking to others and none existed. And that's where it was, it was a, unlike with the internet at the time, I, I wasn't, it didn't have the tools at the time back then to really utilize that. And, but in 2012, I had a, a lot of the different computers the first 10 years of my life. And then through entrepreneurship and then second, and just the, the learning of decentralized systems and economics and all those things kind of really culminated to a, a perfect storm for me to be able to say, this is for me and I'm going to be a leader in this and I'm going to bring people together around this. So. I started holding events and that was really the, the start of community building in Toronto and people coming towards my events and, and eventually holding weekly events and, and just them growing to hundreds of people and then throwing conferences up to upwards of 800 people. And just the amount of enthused people connecting, it's how ideas flourish and grow. And that's really where Ethereum came out of and Vitalik Buter and the initial idea behind a creator behind Ethereum was at my very first meetup back in 2012. And I got to know him very well over the next couple of years. And he was writing stories on me for the things that I was doing in Canada. Cause I started a nonprofit organization called the Bitcoin Alliance of Canada and really reached out to the national, I had knowing people nationally that were really enthused by these technologies. And then I started traveling the world and doing conferences and really expanding my global network. And then when you do that, the ideas just start coming, they just start, start flying. I had taken to Vitalik and we started building wallets. Yeah. My, I did, uh, me and my partner who had, we'd first done a gambling site, which we had exited. And that's where I got some more of my Bitcoin was my first exit into that early 2013. And then over the next say, eight months or so, me and my partner started building wallets and he was a developer, this, this gentleman that I found in, on Reddit in 2012. And he was looking for someone with business ideas. And I said, well, I got business ideas. Here's a developer. And we knocked out a gambling site and within a few months we sold that. And and then we started building wallets with an understanding that the interfaces for this, this new internet, this new decentralized world is, is the wallet. It's how you manage and move value. Very similar to how a wallet and a, a browser is the interface for the internet. It's how you manage and move information. So you need interfaces. You need a bunch of different things for new technologies, such as Bitcoin. You need the interfaces, you need the infrastructure, you need the, the services and tools that people use very similar to what the internet needed, which was the app stores, the cloud services, the browser. And started building the interfaces and the wallets. And, and then Vitalik Buterin showed me the white paper in late 2013. And I passed it along to a colleague, Charles Hoskinson. Um, he validated it for me. And then the three of us, along with a couple others, Mihai Alnizay, who was a, a founder with, with a Vitalik on Bitcoin Magazine, and another gentleman, Amir Chetrit, became the first five founders of Ethereum. And this was the end of 2013. And I ended up funding it with my exit and my crypto that I purchased, which had proceeded to started $8,000 and did, and probably went up to a few million dollars as the price of crypto rose. And we sold uh, with my first exit, which was all Bitcoin and cost us only $5,000 to get the venture underway. And we ended up 
able to sell it for a few hundred thousand dollars in Bitcoin. And then that promptly grew and that funded Ethereum off the bat as we prepared for a crowd sale, which we eventually did the next year, raising $18 million and becoming the largest crowdfunded project of all time and with 9,000 participants in there. And, and that was really the, the start of the Ethereum journey. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. What was the uh, like initial spark, I suppose, that, you know, when Vitalik comes to you with a, with a white paper that got you like, yeah, I, this is, I get this. I get why this is important. I get why it deserves the most important currency I currently hold, which is your time. Yeah. And I think the very first thing was, uh, was Vitalik himself. Uh, I got to know Vitalik over the year from 2012 to 2013. Again, he had dropped out of university and was traveling the world visiting different and working on different Bitcoin projects. And through that uh, journey, he had understood a problem that had existed on Bitcoin, that people were trying to build more complex things on Bitcoin. The struggles with projects like BitShares and MasterCoin, uh, that there was a fundamental flaw and that Bitcoin wasn't made to do more complex things than what it was set out to do. So building trust in him and his reliability all these things that I saw, him him helping me on the wallet company and jumping in when needed when there were some certain issues. So taking a, a leadership role there and just being a, someone who was always prompt and, and on time and uh, becoming a very good writer, which was what he was doing as he was writing more and more articles for Bitcoin Magazine. And I just saw a young, he was 17 at the time, very intelligent, very reliable, genius really. And the fact that he had gone and dropped at a university, you know, the blessing of his parents and, and basically said, I, I want to go full-time in Bitcoin. And then thinking to be able to go and look and, and see where all the products were and what was going on there and coming up with a, 
you know, this, I think the solution is, is building a, a separate chain that uh, institutes a, a smart contract platform and creates a more programmatic, uh, kind of generic platform that you can build whatever you want on top of it was the ethos and, and was the, the idea of, of Ethereum. And then having my network that I could take and validate it is what I did. And then the response from a people like Charles Hoskinson, he's a mathematician and a cryptographer and to get that wow, this is the next thing. This, this is massive because everything was Bitcoin. Everything was Bitcoin at that time. There wasn't anything else really. And then the responses that we started getting as we started showcasing to the communities, this is what we've got. And then meetup groups bringing up all around the world of enthused people thinking that this is the next thing. So it was really a number of things that came together that gave me the confidence to put the money into it, to set up Ethereum Canada. And then uh, for other purposes, we ended up setting up in Switzerland because it was, it was a little more clear on the regulatory stance of, of where we were there. And unfortunately, it wasn't something that we could set up in Canada. And a lot of people say that that is kind of one of the most unfortunate circumstances for that we couldn't feel comfortable as we had three Canadians on, on that were in the initial team uh, there. We had Joseph Lubin, myself and Vitalik Buterin, because we had expanded the order to founder team out to eight and uh, adding in a, a few other people. But it was, it was too bad that we couldn't feel comfortable in Canada with that. And I've always been a, I still reside here in Toronto and, and I've done things that enable me to stay here. And we unfortunately had to go to Switzerland, but we really helped to bring forward a Zug in Switzerland and turn it into a crypto value, a crypto, very pro crypto area that a lot of people have gone to. And so uh, it was a number of things that brought us together. It was a number of things that, that people um, liked about us and the, the idea of, um, of you know, we wanted to stick to the ethos of, of, of Bitcoin, of the security, privacy of stakeholders and giving the opportunity for as many people in the world to be stakeholders in the project that we were getting off the ground. And we had 9,000 participants that gave us money to build out Ethereum and, and trust us to carry it out. And in 2015, it, it launched and the people that, that uh, were involved in the crowd sale had their wallets filled with, with Ether. And then it promptly proceeded to go from, you know, 25 cents initially up to where it is right now and from an $18 million market cap up to 500 billion at, at one point. And uh, it's really just been amazing to be part of that along the journey. And there's been thousands of people that have been responsible for that. And we were just kind of, and me, you know, one, one person in an in a entire group of people passionate about open source technologies, people passionate about empowerment, uh, people passionate about changing systems and, and doing things that, that create a lot of value and, and enable people to be empowered is, is really what I saw that community doing and, and still does to this day. And did you face any like major fuck ups whilst building it? Are there any uh, moments that you reminisce on? You're like, Jesus Christ, that was hairy. Yeah, we had tons. I mean, when you have eight founders on a project that some hadn't even met each other in person, this group of people that within a few months and not even really knowing each other too well, I guess me and Vitalik would have known each other the longest. You get uh, decision-making that, that can take a very long time. You get uh, people that, that are different levels of maturity, different levels of business experience. You get developers who maybe just want to build and don't care about the regulatory uh, concerns that we'd have to th think about. And so it really was, it's hard to put a lot of things are, we move things along, but decision-making and, and direction was very difficult when you have eight, eight founders with a, with a Vitalik getting two bolts in every decision that we had to make. And, and you, you'd have just people that just were not aligned in what was going on and developers pushing us to move faster and faster on the on the regulatory side and working with our lawyers to make sure that in the US we wouldn't be looked at as a security offering, which was the major thing for us. We wanted to be able to sell in the US to raise capital or to fund our products, but we also wanted to make sure we didn't go to jail. And there was just a lot of this pull and push between the different factions and it eventually led to a, uh, 
a takeover, I call it a developer takeover that happened to the project uh, in summer of 2014. That basically was a, you know, this just isn't working. And developers basically put a line in the sand saying that uh, if we don't get what we want, and this is to kind of, to remove a few people from the project and that we're going to fork the project and we're going to take the code and we're going to just, you know, move it into something else. And uh, it was a trying time and, and we let Vitalik make the decisions. And at the end of this very long meeting in Switzerland at the Ethereum house there, uh, Charles was removed from the project and Amir was removed from the project and a couple others were put in their place. And it was really the, the first shift towards a developer focused, um, movement there, uh, but, uh, you know, there were some challenging times that Joseph Lubin and I had funded the project leading up to it and we still hadn't done the crowd sale yet. And there was a feeling of, okay, this is where we put our money, but now as things are changing, we're turning into a nonprofit as opposed to the, the for-profit structure would have been set up. So there were a lot of changes and it was a little challenging, but the, the writing was also on the wall for someone like myself and Joseph Lubin. And we ended up uh, looking to see where we were going to do what I continued to to build wallets and I, I, I continued to move forward with Decentral, which was now the name of my, of my company, which had dropped the Bitcoin because of the, wow, there's more than Bitcoin, there's Ethereum, there's going to be others there. And my goal was to build the tools and infrastructure for the rest of the, the world and not just about Ethereum and there's going to be thousands of these technologies. And so I went on, went on building wallets and infrastructure and tools. Joseph Lubin went on to do Consensus, which is, uh, I'd say the largest uh, Ethereum company out there and projects out there. The developers kind of pushed to get the, the technology out and, and they did. And uh, I still went back and forth with Switzerland for a, quite a while, dealing with some legal stuff and, and making sure things were okay. But uh, I left the project in 2015 uh, to focus more inclusively on, on other projects. And I wouldn't change anything. People say, oh, would you want differently? No, it's, it's worked out well. I'm just, you know, feel very fortunate to be involved with such an amazing team back then and as much hardships as we had. Uh, we had a lot of good times too, and um, it's led to amazing value creation that's being used with so many different companies around the world and so many people. It's become a household name, I always think, Ethereum now. And so to see that progress and to start with from nothing and, and build it up and be part of it, I just feel very fortunate and grateful that that's something that I'd gone through. I, I learned a lot from it. I think all challenges are learning opportunities. I think all struggles are what make you. Well, and I also learned that I never wanted to have partners again, and I've stuck to that since. Um, two things I'm very proud of is I, I don't have partners and I also don't take investor money. That's something that I've really believed, a strong belief in and can lead to a lot of issues. Those, those two things and, and uh, the partner side is just something that I prefer to do. I can make fast decisions. I like to make quick choices and then using my, my own money enables me to not be beholden to investors. And a lot of times it's that, that investors, uh, you, you start with a project, you take investor money. A lot of times uh, you're, you're, you can't focus on things you need to because you're now you're you're on the timelines and things of investors and uh, you're starting to turn dials that uh, need to give them more profits on a month after month basis. And it leads to a degradation sometimes of the vision. And I think there's these cycles that, that I think are some of the major problems the world has is, is this whole idea of maximizing shareholder returns. And I thankfully have said that I don't want to take people's money. I don't want to hold people's money. I like to, to be free and it ties back into not being what I'd like to be told what to do. And that's the way I've done things. I think it's worked out quite well for me and um, it's enabled me to move at the pace that I want with my company and uh, continue to build the tools and infrastructure that the world needs in the decentralized world to empower people to be in control of their money, communications and identity. And that's been my focus for the last like eight years. So much to unpack. Most importantly, let's unpack actually your mindset. Right, because like a lot of this obviously comes from growth. Like you said, that you know all challenge is really opportunity. In the moment, I'd love to know um, how different that person looking back was what was Anthony like in the moment with this struggle that's all your 
hard-earned money previously that's gone into building up decent personal wealth, nothing crazy, but decent personal wealth, and then poured into an Ethereum project, which, you know, not hijacked, but certainly just like the way that these things work, it was the right course that it was taking. And, you know, you said, you know, you went a different direction and you had to face that reality. What was the Anthony of the day like with with tackling these things? Because I work a lot on my mindset and I believe that I would find this incredibly challenging put on me (laughs) in the moment. So I'd love to just reminisce with you a little bit about it. Yeah, definitely. It was it was challenging back then when I talked about the uh, the exit that I had and then Bitcoin proceeding to go up, it actually then promptly went down. And this is when when things were going on with Ethereum and, and I actually borrowed money from my dad to keep things going at the time because we didn't want to bring investors in. We didn't want to bring in, we had a lot of opportunity before the crowd sale to bring in investors and, and we don't want to give up control of this project. We, we don't want that. We'd love to, we want to hold on to this, but, but we were also battling the, we couldn't do the crowd sale. We just weren't prepared on the regulatory side and, and ensuring that we were safe to do what we were doing in the way that we wanted to do it, which was basically give the world an opportunity to be part of this project. And it took time to do it, but along the way, it was my money for the first four months or so. And then Joseph Lubin came in and it was a great savior. He, he brought in more money. And between the two of us, I think it was a, roughly $800,000 was what was needed before we did, we went and we raised the, the money from, uh, from the general public around the world. But it was a struggle. I, I had to borrow money from my dad to do this. And I was funding operations in Switzerland and and in Toronto, and then also there's, you know, let's also, we want to set up in, in here and here and here is like, with people that maybe have never had money before and the understanding that you get someone else's money, like there was a lot of expenditures in Switzerland, which I didn't agree with. We had this, this house with an elevator in it and just a lot of people that um, first time having access to capital and, and it just wasn't as controlled or you didn't have the maturity and experience that, that at least I did a bit of just a little bit older by older and Joseph Lubin had a little more of that experience, but, uh, you had everybody else that was in their twenties, um, you know, either some in the low twenties, mid twenties. So it was challenging. It was frustrating. And I look at things much differently now than I did then. And, and that's a long time ago. It was, you know, 2014 was, uh, you know, eight years ago. And there's been a lot of growth and a lot of change. I, I knew before Ethereum, I never wanted partners. I had already learned that. I knew that, but with that opportunity, I didn't really have much choice in wow, this is something I, I got to be part of. And here's, this is just the way it is. And we kept adding, you know, we had three more founders and I might be like, why are we adding even more founders to the mix? Well, do we need that? And also when you're running a, a project where everybody wants to be decentralized and the idea that you still need to be abiding by the current world, which is we have regulatory uh, things that we want that we have to comply with. We have this and then trying to convince developers and others that don't understand or know the necessity of those things was a constant battle. So it was a struggle. It was challenging. Um, I was, a, it wasn't the best of times, some of those, those times back then and say, but those are all growth opportunities and they were growth times and learning lessons. And it solidified my thinkings that I don't want partners and I don't want to take other people's money in, in, in terms of for investments, if I can avoid it. And I just, I don't want that responsibility. I'm, I was a completely different person than I am now. And it's a long time. And I would say it's really 2018, 19, 20, where I really started thinking about what do I really want to be doing with my life? And am I secure as I want? And, and as, as I always search for freedom, and that's really was always my, my search was to, to be empowered where I can be in control of my life and, and utilizing technology to do that. To, I started thinking I'm less free. And that was a big turning point for me when I'm surrounded by security guards and, and thinking, is this really the life that I want? 
And the answer was no. And really the thinking that the more I search for freedom, the actual less freedom I was actually getting. And that's a contradiction that a lot of people don't understand. And um, something that, that was a hardship for me to say, wow, I always look for freedom. I, that seems to have the opposite effect. What is it I really want to do in this world? And that's where in 2018, I started figuring out uh, really where I want to be in the future and what I want to put my attention to. And since then, I've been on that path to complete change for what I had been doing. And I realized I want to be of service and I want to serve the world. And I'm happy when I'm doing things for others and I see others happy. And the way to do that is through my models to solve problems. And that became my what, my why, and my how. Be of service because it makes me happy and do it via what I call perfect formulas. It's a it's my new brand that I'm going to be bringing out in the future. It's, it's a, basically it's a framework to solve problems and it's a general problem solving formula that I want to focus beyond the crypto space into larger world problems. And that's where I'm, I'm excited to be delving into uh, in the future. We have had some people on the show with exceptional wealth, many, many, many billionaires. And it's a very common thing that comes up, which is that the idea of having billions of dollars um, is often more of a burden and a nightmare than uh, a lot of people imagine. And it might be hard for people to really get into the mindset of why that's the case. And actually, you know, having to hire personal security guards around you because you don't feel safe. Um, and I actually read, I read something that you wrote about, you know, not feeling safe in a space and, you know, and, and how that makes you feel. And I, you know, I'd love to just unpack that for a moment because it's just such an interesting insight. You're a human after all. I'd love to just understand a little bit about how you've had to deal with psychologically becoming exceptionally wealthy, how the positives and the negatives of that actually would be really interesting and um, how your thinking from that moment has evolved to today as well. So crypto and the idea of being your own bank, that's the, that's the whole thing is, is, is the, the, the removal or the not requiring the need for middlemen to be able to sit between two individuals and providing trust levels via technology to be able to have individuals that don't know each other interact in a way that's, that they have trust between each other. And I've always built products and technology and tools that empower people to be in control of three things, their money, their communication, their identity. Well, when you're in full control of your money, you basically are the, the gatekeeper of it. And in the traditional system now, you've got money in a bank. And there's benefits to that. I'm not a black or white person by any means. I think there's benefits to, to bank accounts. There's benefits to the crypto. There's, there's so, and so much in between and offering choice and different services and different values. I mean, I build wallets that the users are in control of the keys. There's no central servers that are storing anything. I'm not, we allow people to manage it, but we don't have access to it. The end user does. Okay. And there's exchanges where you can actually put your money up and they're in control of it. There's so wide range of options out there. And there's not, there's for different, different things. There's different value and different reasons. So uh, the main ethos in crypto is to be your own bank. And with that becomes a lot of responsibility. So if you consider that uh, it's difficult to get money out of a bank, it's very challenging. And so the idea that a being your old bank has its downsides as well. And when you're growing a company, you're doing something, your profile is raising, and then there's announcements that you have this amount of, of crypto and the amount of wealth in it, there's certain risk profile of that that needs to be addressed. And I remember talking with colleagues back in the 2013-14 that there's going to be a whole new need for a whole type of security, security type of protection for the crypto elite and the crypto wealthy. So me over the years, a lot of my money's go back, gone back into building my company. Again, not taking outside capital is, is, you know, I need to come up with myself. And over the years, it's gone into building up my company and the value of my company. But it was the recognition that in 2018, that 
would I want something to be a life-changing event to happen to my family because I'm involved in the crypto space? Not because I'm, I've got a high profile, but that the actual elements of being in the cryptocurrency space and being your own bank and having a, a currency that's not, that can't be traced. And it has certain elements that when you have that personal responsibility, there's a lot of responsibility to be thinking about as well, the more you have of it. So in 2018, I made that decision that in the future, I want to work towards maximizing what I built, the tools and, and the technology, and eventually sell that to be able to do things with that money that I can then give back to the world and be of service to the world and take myself out of the, the crypto space and being known as a crypto guy. I want to be known as a problem solver that's been able to utilize my processes, tools, and principles to be able to be a leader and solve greater world problems. The idea for me is I, I want to use my problem solving models, frameworks to solve larger world problems, to be of service to the world. And I want to do it in a way that brings about the idea that the more good you do for your fellow neighbor, the more good you can do to create positive impact in the world, the more you can do to help others, the more you're going to get in return. So you're selling Decentral and in the same vein, you know, you want to get uh, more and more into philanthropy. Like what is in theory, the target exit value of Decentral. And then I guess you must already have a plan in place for what you'll do with the proceeds. What's the next step once you get the money in from Decentral and, and, and how much do you expect that to be and where will it go? So my goal is to, is to let the world know that, that I am selling and getting as many as part of my, my problem solving models go as as many stakeholders as possible that can be, have a win from, from a situation. So I've never raised capital, so I don't have a, a real true valuation of what the company is worth. We are a technology company that's built infrastructure for years and years and years. And that's been the focus. The focus is of building scalable, interoperable infrastructure, tools, partnerships that can provide a complete package for what the decentralized world needs, which is allowing people to own their community, their, their, their communications identity and their money. So generally, I would say in the few hundreds of millions would kind of be where it would be. But I, I just don't, don't know on that front. In terms of a time frame, it's something that we're just piecing together right now. We're hoping, you know, I, I always say like six, eight months. It's just hard to tell. We've got to do our job to make sure that as many people are going to be understanding this is available and speak to as many different companies as possible, people interested. In and we think we'll have a wide interest because when you build tools for something that's going to be changing and radically changing every aspect of, of the world, it's a very powerful system that can be used for finance. It can be used for building cloud services, infrastructure, gaming. There's so many different things that you can take when you have uh, what we built that can be utilized in many different areas. So we think there's going to be a lot of demand for, for what it is that we built. But what do I want to do next? Again, I have a project coming up that I haven't announced yet, and I think my focus is on Decentral. But it's a project that is, is going to, I want to create movements. To me, everything's about creating movements. If you can create a scalable, deployable situations where an idea takes off, and the idea is based around bringing people together in ways that their lives are better by joining a certain project or figuring out that the understanding that by joining a leader, your life gets better. And my formulas all revolve around creating wins for stakeholders. So uh, the idea of movements to me is, is when you provide something that someone says, wow, by joining that, I get a benefit from it. And that then can scale and grow into movements. And the movements are all around creating positive impact and creating exponential impact. So I want to be a catalyst for change. I want to be a leader. And the project that I'm bringing forward in the future is really about bringing together, bringing together people that have followers and people that have a lot of um, their communities towards competitive projects that will provide winning situations for everybody in, in the mix. And 
I, maybe we can get, get into it sometime in the future on that, but I just want to focus on what I'm doing with Decentral right now. But the idea is I want to change the incentive structures of the world to show that the more you do good for others and the more impact you're creating, the more your brand is going to get value, the more that you're going to be shown as, as someone who's a catalyst of change. I want to be a leader. I want to be a change agent. I want to be someone that solves bigger problems. And at the end of the day, I want to create movements of people that can solve their own problems and people that can be focused because it's also can't be done by just a few people and it needs to, to spawn communities and groups. And that's what I've been good at doing. And that's what Ethereum has been really good at doing is creating vast communities of people aligned with an understanding that the world can be better and we can do more for other people. And I just want to be that, that person that could help to spur that. Yeah. Okay. So I am fascinated um, what you think about um, the idea of DAOs, actually. So uh, for anyone that doesn't know, that's a decentralized autonomous organization. Sounds to me like it would be quite up your alley. You know, that's a movement in itself. So I'd, I'd love to get, but then at the same time, everyone's a, everyone's an investor and a shareholder and decisions and all that stuff. So I'd love, can you explain to listeners what it is and your view on it? Certainly. So yeah, decentralized autonomous organizations are really entities that live in the cloud without jurisdictions, with potentially not knowing who the stakeholders or the shareholders are behind it. So imagine an Uber that doesn't actually have a physical location or a jurisdiction. It has its, its computer code that exists as a contract and people that own a token that represents a voting rights or different, uh, different rules that depending on what tokens they have, it's basically just a, as it sounds, it's an autonomous organization that just doesn't have any ties to potentially jurisdictional, jurisdictional areas. And what does that mean? Imagine an Uber that didn't have to think about compliance or didn't have to think about all the fighting that Ubers had to do over the years and going to different regions, because as a DAO, you, you might not necessarily know who's behind it. Okay, you might, you might not necessarily who's actually making the voting. It could be thousands of people that are having these anonymous votes that are actually carrying out actions. And DAOs came about uh, with Ethereum. Um, back in the day, even when we were launching Ethereum, uh, one of the battles we had in the founders group was turning Ethereum into a DAO, right? We're like, for me, it was like, this is, this is nuts. We're, we're doing smart contracts. I mean, Bitcoin did the blockchain. You know, imagine doing smart contracts on Bitcoin if Satoshi had done that right off the bat. And here we are wanting to institute the next thing which is smart contracts, but we're living in the real world here. For us to would also become a DAO, the, the amount of complexities back then. And then what happened was shortly after, uh, Stefan Twell, um, who was the chief communication officer of Ethereum, he said, you know, he kind of created the first DAO. It was, it was actually called the DAO. And they raised about $150 million in this mechanism where people put money in and what you're doing is you're getting voting rights to decide how the money gets spent. People would put proposals into the DAO and, and depending on how much of these tokens you've had or rights of voting, you could vote to see where the money went. And then any profits coming back out would get distributed evenly amongst the, or distributed amongst the, the owners. And what happened uh, was that the, the contract for the DAO actually was faulty and it ended up, uh, someone siphoned a lot of money from it and, uh, it eventually blew up and, uh, that led to the split of Ethereum and Ethereum led to the Ethereum classic. And, uh, it was basically a battle between immutability and consensus, which are two uh, really important aspects of cryptocurrency, which is the idea that all transactions are finite and final when that's immutability. And then the idea, the idea of consensus, which is the majority wins out and gets to decide how things move forward. And in that case, consensus uh, won out over immutability and they were able to roll back Ethereum to the point where the DAO, the DAO contract was removed and uh, people got their money back. And I wasn't for that. I think immutability is very important. And Charles Hoskinson wasn't for that. And that led to a split of, of Ethereum, but that was basically the genesis of DAOs. And now the more and more I think about it, the more and more I think the future is DAOs. Decentralized autonomous organizations and 
transparent contracts or systems that anybody can participate in potentially that you could see how they work and they're trustworthy that don't have jurisdictional restraints and um, that right now you have these regions around the world that have different laws and it's very almost like bank the banking system there's a lot of friction there's a lot of middlemen there's a lot of people involved so if you had these entities that could just operate and exist in the cloud and can be done in a way that uh, provides more inclusiveness and provides more transparency and trust uh, and people know how the systems work and the more and more i do problem solving in different industries like usually two or three times a week i'm taking my models to and I'm speaking with people and I'm, and I'm tackling and looking into the music industry and the problems with the streaming services or the problems with the, in the movie industry and the problems with the creators trying to get their works out there and, and the, the gatekeepers are the very strong, powerful streaming systems that are akin to the, the, the movie studios of the past and also to the, uh, the record labels in the music industry. There's very similar, big similarities. It's basically that people do, and creators do not feel they're empowered. They feel that they're not empowered to be able to maximize what they're good at and create because they're beholden to gatekeepers or they're beholden to these systems that exist that have not thought better about how to make sure all stakeholders are appeased and they feel strangled. And time and time again, I'm going to speak to people in music or in movies and, and I'm going to walk them through my whiteboarding sessions that I do to identify the problem, identify the stakeholders, identify elements of solution, identify, and at the end of the day, it comes to me, wow, this could use a DAO. This could use a decentralized autonomous system that runs the way it should run, that anybody can participate and people know the rules and the way it works. Because right now there's just too many gatekeepers in pretty much every sector that are using business models, mostly because they, they, the problem solving capabilities are lacking to provide better models and provide better wins for all. And it's a cycle. And it's kind of like the rise of empires that Ray Dalio talks about is you have these systems that gain so much power, but they're pissing so many people off. And those people start, is there a better way? And people come along and say, if you had just done it like this, you wouldn't have pissed off people. Why can we think of situations where everybody is, is winning out of this? The more people winning, the more people on your side, the more people you're not fighting, because who wants to fight? The more you can create movements of aligned people, the more everybody's happy. And it's just the problem solving nature of that to put the piecing it together to, to get there. And that's really the models that I want to bring to the world to say that it can be done. And if your models are not as efficient as they can be, they are serving as many people. Get ready for change coming and the constant asking of why and is there a better way needs to be at the forefront and governments should be thinking that way and focus on entrepreneurship and you know the regulatory things aren't going to work the way that they used to work and you can't try to keep trying to do these things because it doesn't fit when you have technologies that can't be shut down and you're not going to have the power to be doing things that you would traditionally be doing it's not going to happen these things are going to provide more privacy more security and they're going to be these systems that you have to throw your hands up in the future with governments they're going to have to and the fighting aspect of things is just a time delay that's going to need to be thought about differently. And that's where I can encourage people is identify the problems, figure out how you're going to identify situations that are different than what exists now and is going to serve more people. And then think about the opportunities for solutions there. So DAOs, I think, are the answer to a lot. I think it, they still need to be proven out. I think we're a ways away from it, but we're seeing a lot of projects that are emerging that are providing ways that will negate a lot of the bottlenecks and friction faced with companies as they're dealing with, with legal and regulatory problems. And there's just so much friction and middlemen out there that, that aren't really needed and don't provide value to the equation. And blockchain systems, cryptocurrency systems, products like Ethereum, and ideas of DAOs, these decentralized autonomous organizations are going to be game-changing. Amazing. Anthony, it's been a massive pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. 
Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. Five years ago, when I was showing charts of the size of these companies and, and the biggest was $500 billion, people would go, yeah, but it can't get much bigger than 500 billion. And they're all $2 trillion companies now, right? They've quadrupled in size. So why wouldn't they quadruple in size again in the next five years? And if they did, what would they actually be doing? And then I think we have to start asking these questions. Some of them are a bit philosophical because they're not hurting us today in the here and now necessarily. That was Azim Azar, the serial entrepreneur, journalist and author of the book Exponential, How Accelerating Technology is Leaving Us Behind and What to Do About It, which also comes out next week. So get your copy. Find out what the future has in store for our civilization with Azim on next week's Secret Leaders. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.